Hi, this is Paul Donison, and this is Confronting Our Idols, our Lenten podcast, which is a companion to our printed devotional. Each week, we'll be asking questions about various idols, and this podcast is meant to help unpack a little bit more of the detail and get you thinking. Today, we're talking about the idol of relationships. And I'll admit, this is where this discussion of idolatry gets touchy for some and kind of tricky, how we talk about relationships and idols. Because again, here we need to especially remember that idols are always going to be good things, almost always good things that we turn bad by putting our total trust in them. And the reason this gets touchy and tricky is that our relationships are some of the best things in our lives, some of the greatest gifts we're given. And in fact, when you look at much of our storytelling in culture, when you look at movies and you look at literature, oftentimes, instead of drawing the best out of people, the best being you know, a relationship with God or a sense of, of, of sort of service to others in God's name— the best that is usually called for, the sort of the highest ideal in movies and in literature is often family and relationships, friendships. Like that's sort of the picture of like the best that a human being could ever achieve would be to have really good relationships. And if if you've got really good relationships, then you are the best of what humanity can and should be. And the problem is that's not true. There's more to our lives than just our relationships. And in fact, as hard as it is to hear, we can turn our friendships and our family into an idol. And it's one of the great deceptions because we can believe as we look at culture that, oh man, I'm, I'm really living into that. And yet not realize that you're in fact giving yourself over to just yet another idol. I, I think the best example of this, and, and I, I'm going to sound like a Scrooge, and you're going to understand the pun and the tongue-in-cheek on that in a second when I say this, but I see this hugely in Christmas movies. I mean, you know, if your family, if your Christmas movie tradition is kind of traditional, and like, you know, some people who, you know, are a little more exciting and, you know, watch the Die Hard series for family Christmas movies— um, Many people watch the typical Christmas movies like A Christmas Carol or It's a Wonderful Life. Those are my, two of my favorites. And, you know, there's all the other ones, you know, Christmas with the Cranks and National Lampoon's Christmas and all these kind of things that are, you know, definitely worth adding to the list. And Home Alone, I think probably, you know, is going to be looked at by future generations as great cinema. No, not really. But um, but Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life are perfect examples. And actually, referencing Home Alone and a few others, same theme. In A Christmas Carol, let's just unpack this for a second. What's the kind of main moral point of Dickens' story? It's that you see Scrooge, who is greedy, right? He's full of avarice and greed and no care for humanity. That by the end of it, after being visited by the three ghosts, the three spirits, is now transformed into a person who actually cares about his fellow man, which again, don't get me wrong, this is a good thing. I mean, we 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 are called in the gospel to be good neighbors, and it, it it's it's fundamental, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this is the second great commandment. Um, in It's a Wonderful Life, similarly, you know, Jimmy Stewart's character moves from you know always being very family oriented, but he gets confused. 
because he begins to believe, again, that sort of last week's idol of success, this idea of money and success and all the rest, that that's the picture of really what's important in life. And what his family really wants from him is to be really successful. And though he's been extremely generous with people, he sees his life as a failure. Well, then, you know, through Clarence, the angel coming and doing his his little bit of angel magic with him, um, George Bailey gets to see what his what the world would be like without him. And and at the end, again, he's ecstatic and he's kissing his wife and kissing his kids and he's so excited because he's he's been restored to his family. And so in both cases, with a Christmas Carol and with It's a Wonderful Life, the the moral transformation of the central character is to move from uh, greed or sort of a success idol and transfers or is transformed then into a person that actually focuses instead on fellow man, humanity, his family. And in one sense, that's a beautiful story, and that's why I still weep watching both those stories every Christmas. But they're not complete in them of themselves, because if you look at this through the lens of idolatry, if that's where the story ends, with no reference to God, no reference to Jesus, nothing beyond where these characters are going to continue to morally grow, then ultimately all they're really doing is transferring their loyalty from one idol to another. Scrooge moves from the idol of greed to a potential idol of, you know, caring for the Cratchit family, right? It's all about taking care of Tiny Tim, that suddenly his entire world revolves around taking care of Tiny Tim. Now, it's a better idol, you could argue. Like, it's 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 better to be suffering from the idol of, you know, focusing on the welfare of humanity over your greed. But an idol is an idol. And the same it is with George Bailey. The concern is, and you're, you're, again, if you want to accuse me of being a Scrooge and missing the point, you can do so. But here's what I'm getting at is that we need to recognize that relationships, family, friends are one of these very deceptive potential idols in our lives where everything can begin revolving around them. They become a source of our sense of security, our sense of joy, our sense like everything rests in these relationships. And, and here's the indicator that you'll know that your relationships are turning into an idol is when you when you look at these relationships as literally everything you have. Like this is it. That if, if this relationship were to be gone, I, I could not see myself living any longer, right? Again, I can't imagine the death of a spouse, I, I just, I can't, I don't even give myself a whole lot of time to think about that. Although, you know, there's moments, I think most of us do this, where we go to that dark place just to kind of almost catastrophize the situation and say, would I, would I, Lord, be able to even get through this? And I have to believe that even through incredible grief that would last for, for years or decades at the loss of a spouse, I have to believe that, no, there is something more valuable in my life than just this relationship. That there's a reason for living beyond living for that relationship. And the same thing goes on with our children. I mean, as many of you know, our uh, second oldest daughter was very sick, chronically sick in and out of Children's Hospital for seven years. Um, A lot of hospital visits. Thankfully, um, you know, her organs uh, didn't suffer. She didn't suffer organ damage uh, through all the all the procedures she went through and all the sickness and and she has grown into a you know a beautiful young healthy um, 
15 year old. And um, she's, she's, uh, there's a whole other healing story that some of you've heard before that I can share at another time. But I mean, she was miraculously, we believe miraculously healed by God. But, but here's the thing during those seven years, there would be some very dark moments in, in, in the hospital, in, in the emergency room at two in the morning, when I'd be sitting there with my daughter hooked up to IV and IV fluids and having specialists coming in and out, scratching their heads, no idea what to do with her. Um, when, we would, Monica and I both, and our, and our girls as well, would all have to face the question of what, what happens if we lose her? And it was the most awful thing to consider. But, but here's what we had to believe. That as awful as that would be, that our relationship with her, beautiful gift from God, is not the source of our whole existence. In fact, there's an argument that if I want to be a good father, let me put it this way. If I want to have a vision for my family, like if I want to, if I want to have a, a uh, an ability to 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 lead my family well in my home, to 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 be a father, to be a husband, and, and offer a real godly leadership in my home, then put it this way: I need to have a vision for my family that is bigger than my family, if it's going to be a blessing to my family. Do you follow me? If the vision for my family is just my family, about protection and just the focus on that family, on my own family, and that's that's the that's the sum total of the vision. If it's if there's nothing bigger than that, if it's not what can my family grow into for the sake of the kingdom? How how can we live kingdom values in our family? How can our family be of, of service to God and his kingdom? But in other words, if the vision for my family is not as large as God itself and his call and his kingdom then my vision for my family will be too small and will ultimately erode my family. I know, I know this is like really hard to hear because so much of our culture tells us that it's all about the family. It's all about the family. But when we look at scripture, we see biblical examples that warn us against just that, that if you put too much focus on your family, if, if, if your family is everything to you and you don't have a greater vision beyond your family of considering God's kingdom and his calling um, above and beyond that. If your family becomes an idol, we see how families fall apart. I mean, just look at Jacob's story, right? In Genesis, Jacob's love for Rachel over Leah, right? And you may say that that that's that's a weird family because you're talking about polygamy here, but but again, you've got two wives and he loves the one and he, and he has little regard for the other. And it creates a very broken family structure. And, and within that, then the same thing happens with, with Rachel's son, Joseph. Jacob then loves that son above the other brothers. And look how it like destroys the relationship between the brothers, right? Now, ultimately, God works through that brokenness. Again, that's the story of scripture. God comes into these very broken families and, you know, brings his grace and his mercy and blesses through it. You know, that that moment at, at the end there when Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Like God can do these incredible working all things together for the good, Romans 8, 28, in very broken families. But we need to be careful that we don't look at scripture and just say, oh yeah, every family in scripture, you know, clearly, like I wish I, wish I could be a father and a husband like Jacob. No, I don't. Like, I don't look to the Jacob story to say, teach me how to be a father and a husband, Jacob. If anything, I look at Jacob's story and say, let me see how not to be a husband and how not to be a father, right? These stories are not about turning these biblical characters into heroes. God is the only hero in all of the biblical stories. You see it in Samson and Delilah, 
right? You see a, a relationship that becomes everything for Samson, and it totally corrupts his call as a prophet and as a leader. And again, even to that very broken relationship, God still ultimately brings glory out, even in Samson's death. Ahab and Jezebel is another example. Now, I don't want to blame Jezebel for everything. Ahab may have just been totally corrupt and wicked. But you see in that relationship that that through his loyalty to this very wicked queen, he becomes a very, very wicked king of Israel. What's interesting is when you look at Jesus, you know, there's a, there's a colic somewhere in the prayer book. Father Brian, I'm sure, could find it easily. Um where that talks about how Jesus was born into a family. I think we pray that on Christmas. So, you know, Lord, who was born into a family, bless our families. I think that we pray that every Christmas Eve at the Christmas family service. And it's a beautiful prayer that acknowledges Jesus had a family. But even Jesus, right, the Son of God incarnate, born into a family, even so, Jesus gives us an example, as harsh as it sounds, of how to keep things balanced in view of family. Um Listen to what he says. These are harsh words. People hate, I know people hate these words of Jesus. These are like part of the hard sayings of Jesus. In Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will also be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus is not speaking abstractly here. Jesus, when he talks about the relationship between family members, he has a family. He grew up with a father and a mother. He grew up with brothers, and, and we know of brothers and, and, and sister, we assume. And, and when you look at family, Jesus' family unit, he's not speaking abstractly or theoretically. He knows what he's talking about. He's saying, I love my family. I adore my family, right? But if I'm going to love my family more than I love God, if I'm going to love my family first and seek God second— then it's all going to fall apart. Jesus is calling with his kingdom us to radical loyalty to himself and to his kingdom. And, and I love how in Matthew 6, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. In other words, here's what we find when we actually put God first. I remember this conversation as a new Christian, gosh, like 24 years ago, 24, 25, I forget how old I am, um, 25 years ago, uh, a friend of mine, Kevin, Really smart guy, uh, was my best man in my wedding. Was he best man? No, he was my groomsman. It's been too long since our wedding. He was a groomsman at our wedding. A uh, really good friend of mine. And I remember he and I would have all these sort of deep theological conversations at like 17, 18 years of age. Um, I was a new believer and he was sort of a, I think he was a, he had been a believer his whole life, but was a, a renewed believer. And so we got these big philosophical conversations and theological conversations. We didn't have a clue what we were talking about, but but we had fun. And I remember this very clearly this conversation because we were both in committed relationships and he ended up marrying the girl he was dating and I ended up marrying the girl I was dating. And so we were talking about relationship and family and marriage and as relatively new or newly renewed Christians, I remember Kevin and I coming to the conclusion, well, you know, you don't have to love God first. You just have to love your family first and then God will, you know, 
God will be reflected through that. I remember like we were like, oh, we've solved the big question. And of course, then I got married and had kids and go through the struggles of life and realize again that if I make my family the whole focus of my existence, all my hopes and dreams are met in my family, and I don't actually put God first and seek the kingdom first, that I'll never actually end up in a good place. I'll end up in a very, very hard place. And those moments in our lives when we put our families into that place and our families become idols are the times when, in fact, we get the most upset and frustrated with our families because they're not doing for us what only God can do. And so when I look back on that conversation I had with Kevin, what I would now say, you know, 25 years later and with a couple theological degrees under me, um, I'd say, no, actually, Kevin, it's I'd say probably more to myself, Paul at— 17, 18 years of age, Paul. No, the truth is when Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. That's the mystery of the kingdom that when we actually put God in his rightful first place, that he and his kingdom become the focus of our lives. Here's what happens. God, because he can do that because he's God, will actually through that bless us with our ability to love our families that our, our relationships will become more holy, more right, not because we're putting the focus on our families, but because we're putting the focus on God as we put him in that first position. One of the challenges I think that I'm getting at is when we put our families or our friendships into an idolatrous kind of position in our lives, that it's all about them, that my whole sense of being and identity and success is bound up in this relationship. It so often will result in us making choices that are truly compromised choices, compromised living, that we, we will end up living compromised lives, lives that are less than what we're called to as believers. We know better, but we out of a sense of loyalty to that relationship, we will choose to care for that relationship by living compromised lives, immoral choices. Um, there's that moment in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, fabulous book, um, you know, all obviously Lewis theoretical and fictitious and and, and very imaginative, but this this image of this group of people who've just recently died getting on a bus and going up to heaven. And and one of these people, and they're, they're, they meet different people as they're about sort of on the outskirts of heaven, sort of like this. It's kind of Lewis's version of purgatory, which, you know, we as Anglicans don't believe in, and I can talk about purgatory some other time. Um, but, but it's interesting. Lewis is imaginatively thinking about a person basically making the choice of will they be willing to live in heaven? Will they actually choose to want to be with God? And so each of them meets a different person who's already living in heaven who greets them and they talk through it. And Pam, who went through the horrifying experience of losing a child in her earthly life, when she meets her welcome party um, for heaven, all she wants to talk about is Michael, her son, who had died. And here's the problem is that as you listen to what Pam says, I'm going to read just a little quote here you realize that her her love for her son, which she believes is really deep, profound, beautiful, true love, is in fact idolatrous because she has turned Michael into a source of happiness, a sole source of happiness. 
And therefore, she has actually begun to believe that she possesses him and owns him. See, that's part of what happens when we turn our relationships into idols is they become things. They stop being people and they become things. And we actually begin thinking, whether we ever say it out loud or not, that I actually have a degree of ownership over you and possession over you. So here's what Pam says that's ultimately her her description of, of why she will ultimately not choose to go. Because the, the ghost is unwilling to answer the question, is Michael there? Right? The, the question is, you've got to choose heaven separate from the question of Michael. You've got to choose heaven for heaven for God's sake, not for Michael's sake. And here's what she says. She says to the, the, the person greeting her, she says, give me my boy. Do you hear? Like she's died, she's gone to heaven, and her first thing is to make a demand. Give me my boy, do you hear? I don't care about all your rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. Whoa, right there. Like this is me, not Lewis. Right there. Though that is the idolatrous language right there, right? Whenever we say things, an idol indicator in our life is when we say, I don't believe in a God that would do this. In other words, would would remove this thing that I've turned into an idol. That's demonstration that it's become an idol. I don't believe in a God, she says, who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has a right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy and I mean to have him. He is mine. Do you understand? Mine, mine, mine forever and ever. And we should appropriately feel empathetic for Pam. We should feel great degree of pain for her and the, and the pain that she suffered in the loss of her son. But the truth of this fictitious character that is way too close to real life is that this is a person who's turned a relationship into an idol. That she owns him, he's hers, and she, in fact, in the face of God himself, would demand her rights over that relationship. See, ultimately, what ends up happening, and I mentioned this a moment ago, when we look at relationships that become idols, part of the problem is they ultimately disappoint us because we're asking for this relationship to do for us what God only can do, right? Augustine, that famous quote, oh God, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in thee. Like God alone can fulfill and satisfy the needs of the human heart. I, I said this, I think in the first or second week of our podcast that, you know, we, when I talk about sort of idolatry as addiction, that the dignity of a human being, we have such dignity as these, as these, as these, uh, this, this pinnacle of creation, God has made us so wonderfully that nothing can satisfy the complexity of the human hearts in the way that God can. Like nothing but God can satisfy His goodness, His holiness, His beauty, His justice, His creativity, His imagination—all that God is. This is the sole place where we can find our beautiful. Even fallen, yes, we're fallen creatures, but this beautifully, wonderfully made human soul can only find its hope and trust and satisfaction in God. That's how complex and beautiful we are as human beings. But the problem is with this God-shaped hole in our hearts, as is often said, we try to fill it with other things. And so often it's relationships that we try to fill it with. You see that with the woman at the well in John 4? 
right? When Jesus says to her, uh, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you've had five husbands and now the one you have is not your husband. I mean, and Jesus isn't being judgmental there as much as he's telling the truth. He's being gentle. Ultimately, this woman is going to go through a healing experience with Jesus at that well, right? It's, it's an amazing story of redemption. But Jesus is being honest with her, not judgy, just honest. Listen, you clearly have been trying to fill a hole in your life with serial marriages. And the fact that you've gone from husband to husband to husband demonstrates that that hole just ain't getting filled that way, is it? And she knows it's true. She knows it's true. As G.K. Chesterton famously once said, the man who is knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Right? We turn so many of these relationships into a substitute for God, and they ultimately disappoint us. Those idols will disappoint us. And this is why a parent can get so frustrated and mad at a child. Because as a parent, as a good parent, like these are good things we do. We pour so much of ourselves into our children. We give up so much. We sacrifice so much. We, we suffer for the sake of our children. And, and all of that's good. We're called to do all of that. That's good parenting in so many ways. But along the way, if we make that child and their success and this sense of a well-ordered, well-structured family, and we should always, you know, be that beautiful, you know, leave it to beaver, cleaver family. Like if, if we have some kind of vision of that's what my life will only be satisfied if that's what my family looks like or my friendships look like, then the minute that child turns into a teenager and starts mouthing off at you, the minute they dig their heels in as a six-year-old and refuse to listen, the minute they're, they're ungrateful, even after all the sacrifice you've made during a family vacation, and these are all, yes, sinful moments for a child, but they're all natural developmental pieces of what it means to grow up to a human being. But we take that moment, we turn it into this catastrophic moment. Life is over. This is the worst thing ever. And we spin screaming or yelling or angry. And even if we don't scream and yell, we scream and yell on the inside. And all of that is a sign that our family has been creeping slowly into becoming an idol. And the reason we're so mad is the idol is disappointing us. It's not doing what we want it to do for us. Oh, man, this is a hard episode, isn't it? It's just true. I mean, this is this is what it is to struggle with our relationships. This beautiful thing that God has given us. These beautiful relationships. And yet being so cautious of the fact they can turn into idols. So how do we combat this idol? Every week we give a discipline, right? Well, the discipline this week, the classic discipline that we're suggesting to combat this idol of relationships is solitude. Solitude, taking time away alone, is about reminding us of our most essential relationship. See, that's the irony all of it, that the relationship thing is always there, but it's, it's, it's ultimately about what is that primary, most essential relationship, a relationship with God. See, solitude gives us that time away to stop, to stop interacting with others, Right? Whether it's an hour of solitude, just, just taking some time, whether it's a day away, whether it's a week away, 
that time of solitude is about centering back into that central relationship with God. And solitude also can be a bit of a detox experience because we recognize that there's all kinds of relationships in our lives. Um, some are good, not some are not so good. There's aspects of our relationships that maybe be are eating at us, work relationships, family relationships, friendships, others in our lives that are actually uh, toxic relationships. And so sometimes taking a step away into solitude actually gives us an ability to measure that and say, wow, why am I so relaxed all of a sudden? Oh, it's because that toxic relationship isn't sort of right in my face. Again, it gives us an opportunity to think through those things in front of God. And let's be clear about solitude. I mean, I I crave solitude. I like I desperately love my family, desperately love my friends, but I really, really love time in solitude. And I I, I get that. I mean, I, I know I think every week of this podcast I talk about my my week away in Murfield Monastery. Um, but that that really is like a solitude experience, like going away, just me. And it's a whole bunch of monks and, you know, we do silence, which we talked about last week, but also solitude. Like a lot of the time, it's just me alone. And let's be clear, like you alone doesn't need to be like at a hermitage out in the desert somewhere. Um, it can be that. Like you can go on a hike somewhere and be lost in the woods and all that kind of stuff. Um, that was a little hidden Frozen 2 reference for all the uh, parents of small children. But um, the the – the solitude can actually be right here in a suburban urban setting. Um, one of the ways that I press into solitude on an almost daily basis is through a very important purchase of some noise-canceling headphones. Uh, I bought some noise-canceling headphones, and I will often go to a Starbucks or a coffee shop during the day, especially when I'm doing sermon preparation or doing reading or study, something that I do not need to directly be interacting with another person. And I'll go off to a Starbucks or a coffee shop and I'll put those noise-canceling headphones on and I listen to classical music. I actually go on to uh, iTunes and I download um, – because I don't like I don't like lyrics because they distract me, but just music. And I, I've gone on and downloaded a whole bunch of albums of both contemporary and traditional Christian music, hymns and songs um, that are just instrumental versions. And I'll, I'll download those and make a playlist, and it 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 will be my solitude playlist. And I'll just sit there at Starbucks. So it drowns out because noise canceling headphones won't drown out all the noise. You need a bit of music if you want to do the Starbucks or coffee shop thing. And I'll just turn on that playlist of hymns and songs. And as they play, I'm sitting there sort of off in the corner in Starbucks by myself. And as crazy as it is, there might be 35 people in the restaurant, but I'm actually feeling alone. I feel like I'm getting that sense of quiet, that sense of stillness and an and awareness and privacy. And I'll journal. I'll bring a book with me. I'll journal. I'll be doing some work. You, you can work in solitude. Like you can be productive in solitude. But again, it's taking that time away and stopping. And what I find again and again as I'm tucked away into solitude is that I'm again reminded of that primary central relationship in my life, that wherever I go, you know, it's like Psalm 139, you know, where can I go from your spirit? I can't. I, I can run away from everyone else in my life. And sometimes that's healthy to get some space, but I'll never be able to run away from God. He is always there. He is always present with me. And here's what I find. And this is kind of like my takeaway for you and the, and the encouragement for solitude, especially with this question of relationships. Is here's what I find. 
I'm better in my relationships when I'm regularly practicing solitude. My relationships are healthier. I'm a better husband. I'm a more focused father. I'm less codependent. I'm less requiring all these things of the relationships in my life. Of You need to do this for me, or you need to be this for me, or you need to affirm me in this way. When I get more time away in solitude, I return to those relationships as a better relational human being. So my prayer for you this week is that you'll practice some solitude, that you'll, you'll get some time away. You'll give yourself the permission to get some time. And don't just let it be a, a time where you'll just let it happen accidentally, but be thoughtful about it. Think about ways that you can press into that solitude in a way that can be more meaningful and you can be more focused on the presence of God. And my prayer is as you press into solitude, that you will be able to more and more be able to smash this idol, this potential idol in your life and mine of our relationships. So I hope you pick up your copy of our Lenten devotional, Confronting Our Idols at Church, or you can download uh, the devotional online at ChristChurchPlano.org slash Lent. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.